After weeks of speculation, we finally got to hear Harry and Meghan's story. What appears to be a deep rift in the royal family. Tabloid media often argues that all the attention they get is completely warranted because they're public figures. And then the British public will get to decide who the bad guy is, the pregnant duchess or the tabloid media. Hello, I'm Richard Gisbert, and you're at The Listening Post, where we don't cover the news, we cover the way the news is covered. Here are the media stories we're examining this week. Prince Harry and Meghan Markle are up against more than just Buckingham Palace. They're also taking on British journalists, many of whom stand guard for the monarchy. Myanmar's new military rulers are hoping some good PR will change the news narrative on the coup. Alternate realities, the similarities between conspiracy movements like QAnon in America and the gaming world. Plus, give that Arab a cape. Did you kill that guy with bread? Dealing with a distinct lack of diversity in the superhero community. We begin with a story about the royal family in London, datelined California. Two royals in exile, Prince Harry and his American wife, Meghan Markle, interviewed by Oprah Winfrey. Their criticisms of the royal household, the suggestions of racism within, were not well received by certain British news outlets and individuals. The frenzied coverage has already forced one of the UK's more problematic pro-monarchy voices, Piers Morgan, off the airwaves. And it has British journalists debating what the country's society of editors is denying, that the racism in parts of the UK news media runs deep. In that interview, Prince Harry also spoke of an invisible contract that exists between the royals and the tabloids, the access that the family grants in exchange for favorable coverage, which raises questions about the integrity of both institutions. Our starting point this week is Oprah Winfrey's primetime special with Meghan and Harry. Tonight, for the first time, they tell their story. I'm sitting down with Meghan. What Meghan and Harry got by being interviewed by Oprah, of course, was a global platform like no other. So, you ready? Meghan and Harry, who are desperate to get control of the narrative, could not have found a more sympathetic uh, interviewer than they did in Oprah Winfrey. Were you silent or were you silenced? The latter. They're not going head-to-head -head with someone like Piers Morgan, who you know is going to give you a tough time. Because I didn't see it, I go, don't worry, I'm being protected. Oprah wants you to say exactly what you've got to say before she gives a, what? oh no, or like a wow, or that sort of reaction. This is no mere celebrity fest. This story gets at two British institutions, the royal family that Meghan Markle, an American of mixed race, married into, and the UK's media, particularly its tabloid news culture. What people often forget is that this is a huge national and international institution. So, you know, the royal family raises questions of national identity, state power, there's also the Commonwealth. The Queen is the head of state in other countries around the world. It's not just about Britain and it's not just about this family. There's a much bigger question here being asked. The royal family need the media uh, to cover them. The Queen famously said on one occasion, we need to be seen to be believed. In those months when I was pregnant, concerns and conversations about how dark his skin might be when he's born. Who is having that conversation? Meghan and Harry have undermined that pretty severely uh, with their sense that the institution 
let them down, uh, that it didn't treat them properly, particularly Meghan. And that will strike a pretty resonant chord. We're coming up to a point where we need to have a serious conversation about their future. Why are our taxes going towards them? Is it that necessary to have a royal family in, in order for us to maintain our position in, in the world? I would argue no. They don't have any political power or any relevance to 21st century life. At the outset of this story, in 2016, the coverage wasn't all bad. Open-minded news outlets welcomed the idea that a prince could marry a mixed-race woman. But in tabloid land, the signs were troubling. Within days of the relationship becoming public, the Daily Mail and the Express were both exploring Markle's L.A. roots in unflattering terms, fueling the trolls on social media. It was only a month before Prince Harry issued a statement on the racial undertones of certain commentators and the nightly legal battles to keep defamatory stories out of the papers. They sell misogyny. That's what the British media does. It sells racism. It sells sexism, you know, right off its printed papers, right off its clickbait online, because it has a market for it. The racism intersects with sexism, it intersects with misogyny, and most definitely intersects with bigotry. This is what black women experience and biracial women of black heritage. The narrative that the British public, the monarchy and the tabloid press have always been against Meghan simply isn't true. I completely agree that there were some very unpleasant and nasty articles as Kate Middleton had. I think it was more a case of her class than her race. People don't want to hear that, but I think that's what the real issue is. You can't deny that there's a racial element in it. Her existence challenges everything that the upper echelons of society in Britain stand for, which is breeding, heritage, inherited wealth and status, and having a villain sells papers. Lots of people, they don't give a damn about the royal family, but they do want to know about someone being made to cry on the eve of their wedding, because that's just who we are. If the royal family needs the media, then the feeling is mutual, the relationship symbiotic. Journalists require access to the palace for news content. Piers Morgan, a tabloid editor turned broadcaster, is the embodiment of that conflict. Morgan knew Markle. He said they went for drinks once, that he liked her, but he found himself rebuffed. I have never heard from her again. So what happened? In she, your, she, she ghosted me, Ryan. After the wedding was announced, Morgan used social media to lobby for an invitation, which he never got. I got an invite. Not yet. Oh. I'm, I'm baffled. He eventually grew more critical of Markle, and when she spoke this week of having mental health issues, thoughts of suicide, which she said the palace disregarded, Morgan accused her of lying. I'm sorry, I don't believe a word she says, Meghan Markle. Well, and the fact that she's fired up this, this onslaught against our royal family, I think is contemptible. The next morning, one of his co-anchors said Morgan had a personal grudge that was affecting his journalism. Has she said anything about you since she cut you off? I don't think she has, but yet you continue to trash her. OK, I'm done with this. No, no, no. Sorry, no. Oh, Sorry. Do you know what? That's pathetic. You can trash me, maybe, not my No, own no, no, no. See I'm, you later. I'm being... 
Sorry, can't this do this. This is absolutely diabolical behavior. He may as well not have returned. After tens of thousands of complaints were made about Morgan, his bosses at ITV announced he was no longer with the program. Of course, Meghan in the Oprah interview really has brought out the two big guns of mental health and race. And what I feel is that it's become incredibly difficult to question those. I don't see uh, why Piers had to go because he questioned her credibility. I can see, though, that um, calling somebody whining or whinging for complaining of mental health issues has got everyone on red alert. But for me, this highlights a far bigger issue that it's become impossible in our society to have reasonable debate. What this really speaks to is these kind of much wider culture wars that we're seeing in society at the moment. How social media lends itself to these really polarised positions. So you're either team peers and you, or you're team Megan and there's kind of no, there's kind of no nuanced debate between those two things. The modern history of the House of Windsor has been told through television cameras. Many Britons bought their first TV in 1953 so they could watch the coronation of Queen Elizabeth. In 1995, Princess Diana used a BBC interview to accuse the heir to the throne of adultery. Well, there were three of us in this marriage, so it was a bit crowded. And at her funeral two years later, the televised images of Prince Harry by the coffin were seared into memory banks. Why? Why were you staying with a convicted sex offender? Right. In 2019, the BBC grilled Prince Andrew over his American pedophile friend, Jeffrey Epstein, and that picture of him with a 16-year-old girl who would later accuse him of rape. The prince has yet to face justice. His BBC interview was big news in the UK, but not on the same scale, nowhere near the feeding frenzy that this one has become. His interview was a disaster because Prince Andrew is a disaster. He could not contemplate <laughs> the mistakes of his ways, which is he should never have had a convicted pedophile as a friend, period. But the lack of major backlash, it comes down to this symbiotic relationship that a royal family has with the British media. That is why Harry and Meghan's situation is used, they're used as scapegoats. They are, you know, maligned. Their characters are assassinated. And Prince Andrew is pretty much scot-free. This news story, populated with celebrities, is far more revealing than it might appear. Dig in deep enough, and it's about class, race, access and aspiration, discourse, and its limits. And it's about whether aging institutions, the monarchy and Britain's mainstream media remain fit for purpose in the 21st century. It hasn't been a good week for either of them. It's been a month and a half now since the military coup in Myanmar that deposed the government of Aung San Suu Kyi. There have been protests ever since. The crackdown by the military goes on. And the news media are still being targeted. Nick Muirhead has been following this story. Nick, we covered the coup last month. What has changed since? Well, some things have changed, Richard, but a lot has stayed the same. 
So when we covered the story, we looked at the violent crackdown by the military, the rolling shutdowns of the internet, the arbitrary arrests of journalists, the censorship of coverage the military didn't like. All of that is still happening. Um, but it looks like the efforts are being ramped up. The number of journalists who've now been arrested is at least 35. Um, and as many as half of them are still behind bars. Uh, the raids on independent news outlets, that's continued. And at least five news organizations like the Democratic Voice of Burma, Seven Days, Myanmar Now, they've had their licenses stripped from them. So the military really has maintained its tight grip on the country's media. Yeah, but what can the junta do about the external narrative? What's being said on the outside? The sanctions that have been so a number of countries, particularly in the West, have placed sanctions on Myanmar, and there are reports now that the EU intends to widen the measures it's already taken. So Myanmar is now looking to the outside for, the, for help. It's hired a Canadian PR firm to, quote, assist it in explaining the real situation in the country. The firm Dickens & Madsen Canada is owned by Ari Ben Manashi. He is a former Israeli intelligence officer turned arms dealer turned lobbyist. What can you tell us about Ben Menashe's uh, former list of clients and his modus operandi, his MO? So Ben Menashe has worked with the former president of Zimbabwe, Robert Mugabe. He's worked with the military government in Sudan. He's got a long list of clients. And his uh, company is known for its manipulation of the media. Even now, we're seeing Ben Menashe giving interviews where he's trying to pin the blame on Aung San Suu Kyi for the persecutions of the Rohingyas, as if that somehow absolves the military of guilt, even though it stands accused of carrying out many, if not most, of the atrocities. Um, he said that the civilian government was straying into the orbit of China, which seems to be an attempt to rebrand the coup as being pro-West, or at, very, at the very least, anti-Beijing. Um, and he's also admitted that there is a lot of money in this for him. He says that there is a big bonus in it for him at the end of the day if he manages to get the sanctions against Myanmar lifted. So it's going to be interesting to hear what he has to say next. Okay, thanks, Nick. In the aftermath of January's Capitol Hill riots in Washington, conspiracy theories from the dark corners of the web have been dragged out into the light. The QAnon movement, for example, which contends that our world is somehow controlled by a cabal of Satan-worshipping, cannibalistic pedophiles. Followers believe that Q is one or several senior military or intelligence officials who have been trying to expose a deep state plot against Donald Trump. And Q flags were seen all over Washington on that January day. Journalists have since devoted a lot of time to trying to understand the conspiratorial mindset, how so many Americans have come to believe these things. One of the more interesting takes that we've seen came not from a reporter, but a game designer, Reid Berkowitz. In QAnon, Berkowitz sees a world similar to the ones that he creates in ARGs, alternate reality games. His analysis, an essay we asked him to adapt for television, explains a lot about the way our flawed minds work and how easily we can be dragged down the conspiratorial rabbit hole. I am a game designer with experience in a very small niche. I create and research games designed to be played in reality. Fictions designed to feel as real as possible. Puzzles where the deeper you dig, the more you find. Games with rabbit holes that invite you into Wonderland and entice you through the looking glass. When I saw QAnon, I knew exactly what it was. 
and what it was doing. I had seen it before. I had almost built it before. It was gaming's evil twin. A game that plays people. QAnon uses the form and techniques of alternate reality gaming, ARG. The QAnon universe has a game-like feel to it that is evident to anyone who has ever played an ARG or an online roleplay. However, Q is not a game. QAnon is like the reflection of a game in a mirror. It looks just like one, but it is inverted. In one of the very first experience fictions I ever designed, the players had to explore a creepy basement looking for clues. The object they were looking for was barely hidden, and the clue was easy. As the participants started searching for the object I had hidden, they spotted little random scraps of wood on the floor that happened to make the shape of a perfect arrow pointing right at a blank wall. It had to be a clue. Then it got worse. Since there obviously was no clue there, the group decided the clue they were looking for was in the wall. The collection of ordinary tools they found conveniently laying around seemed to enforce their conclusion that this was the right direction. It was all random chance, but I could see the connections that had been made were all completely logical. These were normal people, and their assumptions were normal and logical and just completely wrong. They had not found a clue. They had created one. Psychologists have a name for this kind of syndrome. They call it apophenia. Apophenia is the tendency to perceive a connection or meaningful patterns between unrelated or random things. In QAnon, that's the point. It isn't about finding the clues and solving the puzzles. It's about confusing people into tearing down walls. If you are a designer and have puzzles and have a plot, then apophenia is a wild card you always have to be concerned about. QAnon is a mere reflection of this dynamic. Here, apophenia is the point of everything. There are no scripted plots. There are no puzzles to solve created by game designers. There are no solutions. They're constantly getting the player lost by pointing out unrelated random events and creating a meaning for them that fits the propaganda message Q is delivering. Q is everybody. We don't know who particularly Q is. Q is a, a movement. Okay? It says think for yourself. It doesn't tell you to follow a one leader. You can think about what you want with Q. Q is a fictional character in a fictional game. A real whistleblower with important information would get it out as fast as possible to the most reliable source possible. There are people like Daniel Ellsberg, Edward Snowden, and Chelsea Manning. They don't drop clues and make you solve puzzles to look at the information. Q does, though. He does this because he is not a whistleblower. Q is a fictional character and acts exactly like a fictional character. This is because the purpose of Q is not to divulge actual information, but to create fiction. Let's take a look at how this works. To create apophenia, first you need random data. The more, the better. Then you need to interpret that data in a way that leads you to a false solution that fits the narrative. In several Q drops, Q tells followers that there is a shadowy cult out there in which the members are required to reveal their status through symbolism, like owls and horned animal heads. Q asks them to look out for these symbols and jewelry, tattoos, or hand gestures of public figures and celebrities. 
Of course, Q knows what they'll find. The Clintons throwing the rock and roll hand horns. Jay-Z flashing the Illuminati sign. The Rothschilds wearing horned heads at fancy dress costume parties. The images pile up fast. Clue after clue points the investigators to mountains of out-of-context images of the people they distrust, totally looking like they are in a cult. There is no doubt about the political nature of this propaganda either. This is the internet's repurposing of hatred's greatest hits. It isn't an isolated process, but done in a large community of like-minded people. They share their finds and get showered with compliments, encouragement, and praise. They post images, trade theories, create memes, Photoshop the images into crazy quilts of people wearing owls and goat heads and pentagrams. They may not believe it at first, but as they watch endless music videos of a Hollywood elite covered in occult symbolism screaming about drugs and demons, a doubt grows. Doubts are notoriously hard to get rid of. The ideas start to surround them. A majority of people they know believe, at least partly, in QAnon-inspired conspiracies. All their news feeds echo the same thing. TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, and all over Twitter. OAN and Newsmax are reporting on it. QAnon is becoming a widely accepted system of beliefs, the new mainstream. If they ever lose faith, there are senators and even the former president of the United States talking about what a great movement QAnon is. I've heard these are people that love our country. Eventually, they just stop fighting it. They finally accept what is right before their eyes and what explains so much and what everyone around them is also seeing and telling them is the truth. It's an international satanic cult. And this is the moment of apophony. Only this is delusion as revelation. There's a reason that people enjoy doing puzzles, one most of us aren't aware of. When we solve puzzles, we get a hit of dopamine. It biochemically anchors the idea into our mind in a way that conveys certainty and gives us the motivation to solve more puzzles. It's that feeling you experience when you get the lawnmower to work or when you solve a hard puzzle in a great game. The problem is, we also get the same rush when we solve a puzzle incorrectly but think we've got it right. Unlike the puzzles in a real game that have real solutions, there is no reality here, no solution in the real world. Instead, this is a breadcrumb trail away from reality, away from actual solutions and towards a dangerous psychological rush. It works because when you figure it out yourself, you own it. Because you've experienced the thrill of discovery, the excitement of the rabbit hole, the acceptance of a community that loves and respects you. Because you were convinced to connect the dots yourself, you can see the absolute logic of it. It's a feeling that game designers are always chasing, giving players the ability to live in a world of magic that is vibrant and alive with potential. A world that reveals itself to you day by day. A world you can understand and have a role in. I can't believe people won't give that feeling up without a fight. Whatever happens with Trump or QAnon, one thing is certain. The gaming techniques employed in QAnon are simply too effective to be forgotten. The genie is out of the bottle. It may not be Q, but the gamification of propaganda will continue to evolve. This 
is just the beginning. And finally, if you're Arab, you are accustomed to the film and television industries, especially Hollywood, casting people like you or who look like you as villains. White Westerners usually get to play the hero. Superheroes are no different. The original lineup of Marvel's Avengers was five white guys and one white woman. The Hulk was green, but only when he had anger management issues. We're seeing a little more diversity these days. The comic book Spider-Man is now an Afro-Latino and Mrs. Marvel is a Pakistani-American. But we're still waiting on that first Arab in a cape, equipped with superpowers, saving the world on the big screen. A comedy duo out of Toronto called Wishful Genies decided to wait no more. So we leave you now with Habib, the first Arab superhero. And we'll see you next time here at The Listening Notes. Please don't hurt me. Did you kill that guy with bread? Can you describe the man who saved your life? He had a red hat. He was Middle Eastern, I think. An Arab good guy? We've never seen this before. Mama, Baba, I have to tell you something. And the superhero? Okay, but you should still get a degree. What? You need a real job, man. Habib, your country needs you. Sorry, there's just a quick screening. It's completely random. We did Hulk last week. I'm a superhero. Why don't you be like Doctor Strange? He is a superhero and a doctor. our city. Vic? You have to get married. How old are you now? 21? I don't care if being with you puts me in danger. What did she say? Habib, we believe you'll be key in saving the world. Can we count on you? Inshallah. What does that mean? Just say yes or no.